Hello, and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. This is, I believe, episode 153 of the podcast, and I'm joined once again by frequent Full Cast and Crew guest hosts, Emiratus, Richard Brown. Richard, welcome. Thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure to have you on the pod. I'm excited to talk about Robert Altman's 1975 film, Nashville. And where I'd like to start, Richard, I wanted to play that trailer uh, that I sent you, which I found so fascinating Mm -hmm. uh, for a, a kind of a springing off point for a conversation because I thought it sort of spoke quite well to a lot of things about the film. What I thought was interesting about this trailer was people know who listen to the podcast, you know, a Robert Altman film has historically been a difficult thing to categorize and certainly to market oftentimes. And I thought this trailer, uh, well, let's play it and you can share your thoughts on it and I'll share mine. Here we go. This is the original 1975 trailer. Robert Altman's Nashville is five days in the lives of 24 unforgettable people. That's a lot of characters, so listen closely. Lily Tomlin is a gospel singer who strays just a bit when she has a one-night stand with Keith Carradine, a hot young rock singer. Ned Beatty is her husband who doesn't suspect a thing. Henry Gibson is the number one country and western singer who's being tempted to run for governor. His sidekick, Barbara Baxley, drinks a bit and talks a lot. And his son, Dave Peel, is sort of attracted to Geraldine Chaplin, who plays a star-struck reporter from BBC TV. Ronnie Blakely is the the adored singing star on the verge of a breakdown. Alan Garfield is the husband trying to save her life and her career. Scott Glenn is the quiet soldier who worships her from afar. Karen Black is the rival singer who dresses like a sweet little prom queen. But don't let that fool you. Michael Murphy is the campaign manager who will promise anything, especially to Gwen Wells, a waitress who dreams of being in the spotlight and may have to do a lot of things she never dreamed of to get there. Robert Doki is the one man who tries to tell her the truth. Shelley Duval is the wide-eyed groupie doing what all groupies do so well. Keenan Wynn is the uncle who doesn't understand this wild girl in the sequined hot pants. David Hayward is the sensitive young boy who answers the room for rent sign and who has a big surprise in store for everyone. Christina Raines is the female singer in a trio who's married to one of them, Alan Nichols, but spends a lot of time with the other one. And David Arkin is the chauffeur who knows all the inside stories and is ready to tell them. Timothy Brown is a black singer who's made it, but not everybody is happy about that. Jeff Goldblum is the cycle freak who's everywhere the action is. Barbara Harris is the would-be superstar who's running away from husband Bert Remsen, who's chasing her through the wilds of Nashville. Nashville is about a lot of things and a lot of people. See all 24 of them and the outrageous things they do in Robert Altman's Nashville. Robert Altman's Nashville. For movie lovers. The damnedest thing you ever saw. <laughs> so what do you think of that trailer, Rick? Um, it's the damnedest trailer I ever saw. <laughs> I don't really get the idea of uh, trying to uh, just tick off the names of actors, a lot of whom were not famous before or after this movie, mm-hmm. some of whom were were made famous by this movie. But it doesn't really give me a, a sense of either the story, despite the fact that it's sort of ticking off um, the different stories. And it really undersells um, the fact that there's a lot of music. Mm. Well, I I actually like it. I mean, I guess I'm thinking a bit 
perhaps from the perspective of, I don't know, the business side of the industry, you know, which, yeah, what do you, what, what would you, what do you do with it? The, yeah, a, a movie like this. Yeah. It's I mean, all it, these sort of, uh, intertwined stories, right? Like you, you could cut together a, some sort of a narrative trailer, but I mean, which storyline do you pick? I mean, the science of cutting trailers, you know, is almost subliminal in communicating what the film is about to the viewer. And if you were to choose a A storyline, a B storyline, and a C storyline out of Nashville to try and put a trailer together. I'm not sure that would get you any closer to describing or ascribing what the film is really about. Okay, so you like the trailer. Well, it's it's not so much that I like the trailer as I find it interesting, and I find it really specific to some of the issues that were at play, not only in the conception and the production of the film, but certainly in the reaction to the film when it would come out. Yeah. And I think that it's kind of ironic that I think someone at the studio smartly arrived at this as kind of the only thing you might be able to do. And I think it's better that they did this than try to cut together a narrative trailer because I think that would have if, if, if that would have certainly been, you know, good movie bad trailer as opposed to a good movie, maybe classic movie and odd trailer. You know, I don't know yeah. what the option would be. So I think when you say, well, I don't like it, you'd have to tell me what the better version of the Nashville trailer would be. And I just don't know that you and I could even come up with something like that. Yeah, that's true. I, you know, I'm obviously not in the business of cutting the other trailers. I'm only saying that from my point of view, uh, watching this and after seeing the movie a few times, it has a feel of, as you said, uh, uh, you know, marketing people who really didn't know what to do, uh, didn't know how to market this movie either because it would maybe because it was too hard to um to do so maybe and that's what's also interesting is then when the film starts you kind of have a version of this again <laughs> in a way that i wasn't sure when i was watching it was i watching a uh you know like a dvd extra that contained a trailer at the top before the film started um but no, the film actually does start with a version of this. Play a little of that for you here, because it's almost like they decided to do the same thing <laughs> in the theatrical presentation of the film. Mm -hmm. And this little late arriving kind of animated uh, fake ad in a way is mm -hmm. very meta for 1975. I think so. Film going audiences. What they should have used I, I would have been interesting if they had used this fake ad as the ad for the movie. Yeah. I mean in a way you know it's funny where the um where the trailer i don't know why i'm fascinated by this this device which i read in the book that you suggested which is excellent by the way um, that the book, I can't remember what it was called, but it must be a Nashville Chronicles, Nashville Chronicles. Was that like a contemporary book when the movie came out? 
It was written in 2000. Oh, it was. Wow. It has the feel of being written on set in real time. So I, I guess that's a, I guess that's a feather in the cap of the author who did a great job, but they posited in that book that there was someone on the set who kind of was drawing these caricatures of the, of all the cast members and he kind of accosted Altman at the very end and was sort of like, you got to look at this. And, and Altman was like, that's great. Can you get that together? We're going to use it. And, but what's funny about the trailer versus this, and it's in, and in a way, this is sort of the filmmaker's version of trying to prime the audience for what's to come, I guess. Right. It's, it's yeah. trying to sort of explain to you, there's all these people, some of them sing songs, some of them are bands, some of them are related to the music business in various ways. But the fact of the trailer being kind of that male and female voice describing it to you is one step removed from the way this is presented, which is sort of like a hokey television compilation commercial. And so I think the distance of the trailer, you can imagine seeing that in a, in a theater you know, some weeks or months before Nashville opens. And if you're film literate at the time, if you were hip, you know, you know that it's a new Altman film, so you're already going to go see it. I'm not sure who would go see this other than the Altman hip of, of the time. And I think the box office proves that out in terms of how the film eventually did. But this starting the film is such a funny device because at first I was like, is this a DVD extra? that somehow plays before the film starts. But no, this is how the film actually starts, which I think yeah. is interesting. Commercial for the film, which is, a, which is you know, a, a, a movie about, a largely about people trying to promote themselves for one reason or another. Yeah, and it's sort of glommed on as this, as if it's an ad for the, well, it says it in the graphic, the original motion picture soundtrack of Nashville, uh, which we'll mm -hmm. come back to. So, um, yeah, I... I I watched this film several times. I don't think I've ever had an experience like I've had watching a film for the podcast as I did with Nashville. And I don't really know why. And I'm hoping you can help me figure out what the hell I think. I'm here for you. Because at various times, I thought, this is a pretty bad, lazy movie that is a <laughs> sort of mean-spirited hit piece on a town and an industry that deserved better. Then I watched it and felt, wow, this is such a sharp, smart satire of the entertainment industry that uses the country music industry just as a lens. It's not, it's not pointing a finger at this industry specifically as much as it's pointing a finger at us as a society and arriving at some typically dark Altman-esque conclusions to... Third viewing, really just appreciating <laughs> two things, appreciating the technical mastery of the filmmaking and how it fits together and, and the decisions that are made in the edit to jump from one thing to another in a way that says so much, almost more than the scenes themselves, to also really speculating on whether this kind of blank canvas became this thing that's so easy for people to project whatever the hell they think it's about onto. Whereas when we read this book that you suggested and we read the Altman biography, it's not as if he had a grand design in mind in making this film. Like it's almost as if the studio had said to him, hey, you should do something set in the world of country music. Here's a screenplay. He read the screenplay, didn't like it, and then sent uh, his screenwriter to Nashville to try and like, 
figure something out. And she sort of just came back with this amalgamation of things that happened to her. And they shot that and it ends up, does it end up being this grand statement about the rot at the core of American institutions? Or is it just this rolling, strange tableau of half-related scenes and half-baked characters? I still don't know. Yeah, me neither. It's <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting, um, uh, your choice of the word grand design here, because on the one hand, Altman is sort of loathe to have a grand design like you said he sort of you know he he threw out uh you know pitched ideas and then eventually he even threw out the you know the written script that he had commissioned for this movie because he wanted to keep experimenting with improvisational acting and he so on the one hand he's resisting having a grand plan but at the same time things keep sort of falling together in this movie that would seem unplanned um, as if he's sort of like improvising, you know, genius as he's, as he's making the thing or as the thing's being edited maybe. Mm. And so it ends up being sort of grand by accident. <laughs> yeah. Or not. And I, and I still don't know. Like if someone asked me, is Nashville a great film? It, I don't know what I would say because there's a part of me, the music part of me, the part of me that loves country music, that loves the industry of all of these things, even as I recognize the moral corruption and capitalistic rot that can be at the center of any entertainment industry business. Even as mm -hmm. I recognize that, I think to be a fan of those things is to understand that the pathos of that intersection of business and art is part of what we all love about that stuff. And so yeah. the the reaction that came out of Nashville, the town and the industry, when the film came out, it really resonates with me, which is overwhelmingly negative, which was, wow, how could you film a movie in and about Nashville and country, the country music industry and and not ever feature any of the stuff that makes it what it is, which is the, the real music. Like the choice that he made to not use real country music songs and performers and instead use these written ones, which are either sarcastic and satiric and meant to be ridiculous or are trying to be sort of of their time and aren't necessarily trying to be silly or satirical, but are also not the highest level of what country music had to offer even then. And so yeah. that resonates with me when I, if you're gonna make a movie called Nashville about Nashville, I think it's safe to say he completely wasn't interested in trying to get at anything truthful about that per se, even as he probably got some things that are very truthful in a glancing way about the music business, about yeah. misogyny and all that kind of stuff that goes on. I mean, I think some of those scenes are extremely well done, but I don't know why I'm unresolved. I really don't. It's like the weirdest reaction to a movie I've had ever on the history of the pod. <laughs> it's interesting. Like, do you and, love you know, this movie? What, what, where well, do you come I mean, out? For, for one thing, just to go back to what you were saying a minute ago, um, you know, I would tell your very knowledgeable uh, listeners who may not have seen this movie yet, that if you're anticipating, you know, a satire about, um, not a satire, but, you know, a, uh, 
you know, a, a docudrama and a docu-comedy about the country music, where country music stood in 1975, you're actually not going to find it in Nashville. It's not a good country music no. <laughs> uh, movie. Uh, and the music is alternately uh, kind of great to bad, uh, purposefully. Mm-hmm. But honestly, the people behind this movie, the director, the screenwriter, the actors, even the music people, nobody who was behind this movie, except maybe the musicians on stage mm-hmm. in the various musical scenes, had actually anything to do with country music at all. <laughs> right. I mean, maybe Ronnie Blakely a little bit, who, you know, toured, yeah, toured with... Yeah, she's kind of a folk rock... Yeah, she's not really... Uh, yeah. You know, girl from the West Coast. Yeah. So, now, this gets into the issue of artistic intent, directorial intent. It's not for you and I to sit here in 2023 and say, well, he shoulda, woulda, coulda, because I do believe that he, as the director and the artist, is entitled to do whatever the hell he wants. And, and what he wanted to do was continue to discuss in a very prescient way. This is part of the part of the film that I find so shockingly, sadly still relevant is what he's describing about our political process and the sheep-like attitudes of most people in America towards the political process, towards horrible shootings that occur is still completely vital today. And to the extent that he's putting his thumb on the scale to say something about our society and just kind of, he used this town in order to do that more than he's trying to, he's not trying to do a takedown of country music. He's not trying to do that coastal elite snobbish attitude towards real rural Americans. I don't think he is, is he? Like other movies have done that. I mean, Deliverance could be accused of doing that more than Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure that he's trying to to say these yokels are moronic, although the Michael Murphy, Murphy character certainly does say exactly that almost verbatim and has, yeah. has a dismissive attitude towards these people, even as he's trying to rally them to help his, his populist candidate win the presidency, which, you know, I mean, there's so many echoes of kind of Trump in this thing, which are sh- shocking to view today. Yeah, and it's interesting because there are actually people who are comparing the uh, the unseen Southern political candidate in this movie. People were actually comparing him within the next few years to the Jimmy Carter campaign, which was that he was an affable guy <laughs> who sort of spoke in platitudes, uh, but there wasn't a lot of necessarily a lot of policy or substance underneath it. Mm. That's not. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not really here to criticize Jimmy Carter. That's. But that's what people wrote about at the time. Yeah. And when you talk about the soundtrack, I was, it occurred to me last night watching it. I was like this, there's a, and again, this is like, I'm, I'm, I'm on such the back foot here because I'm going to say something that I wouldn't normally say, which is like what this should have been. The soundtrack to this movie, given the cultural presence that the film still has today, it should be one of the most iconic film soundtracks of all time. Right? Like, it should have had a collection of songs, even if it was period country music of 1975, it should have a soundtrack that we would put on and listen to today. But you would never listen to this soundtrack unless you were listening to it almost as a comedy record, because that's what the songs are. I mean, segue into 
uh, doesn't have two. The what's the song from? Um, we must we must be doing something right to last two hundred years. The Haven Hamilton song at the beginning. Yeah, I think it's just called Two Hundred Years. I mean, like uh, the. You know, my daddy, I mean, it, it goes like my daddy lost a leg in France. I mean, this is a brilliant satire of a certain style of country music for sure. My mother's people came by ship and fought at Bunker Hill. My daddy lost a leg in France, I have his medal still. <laughs> My brother served with Patton, I saw action in Algiers. Oh, we must be doing something right to last 200 years. <laughs> That's so, like, I appreciate that as a ultimate piece of satirical brilliance. Mm -hmm. And perfect character development for Haven Hamilton. It's the first time you see Haven Hamilton, I think, singing this song in the studio and sort of his, the nasty asshole parts of his personality are so perfectly displayed. And that's what I mean by some of these scenes, when you just look at them as scenes, are so masterful for the degree that Altman and Tewksbury, Joan Tewksbury, the screenwriter, create these moments where people's true nature is always at odds with their public image. And I think that's a completely fascinating aspect of almost every scene in the film. And certainly this first one with this hilarious song. I'm not sure if that's one of the Shel Silverstein songs or I think it's Richard Baskin who kind of is another very young person who kind of uh, forced his way into the Altman camp and said, I should do the music for this for this film. I think he also plays Frog, the piano player that Haven yells at in this opening scene. Right. Well, he's actually all over the movie yeah. um, as uh, sort of the uh, house musician playing piano yeah. and guitar in uh, in different parts. Uh, he uh, wrote this music, wrote this song with what's his name? Uh, Henry Gibson. Henry Gibson. Um, yeah. And in a lot of cases, these actors who were not necessarily singers or musicians were assigned to go write Right. The lyrics for their own songs uh, mm -hmm. to be used in the movie. Yeah. And on top of that, everything that you see in this movie, all the musical parts are, are, are they're filmed live. Right. That's true. They're not, they're, they're, you know, they're obviously they're squeaking the studio, but mm, these are not true. overdubs. These are all live pieces, whether it's in, whether it's in the, the, the characters in the, in the, uh, you're right. The studio or on stage. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I didn't think about that. And that is it actually, that's an impressive part of the film. And it's also part of what's frustrating for me about the film is because aside from the, um, God, who, oh, Vassar Clements, you know, is the legendary fiddle player who has a scene. One of the only times, I mean, there's a few throwaway moments where real quote unquote country musicians are on stage performing, mostly as backing acts for our characters. But, yeah. you know, there's that really hilarious duo the um, with the really short girl who looks like 14 years old. Right. Yeah. There's another scene where, uh, you know, you were just talking about um, uh, Henry Gibson's song as being sort of obviously satire. But go back and listen to the, the lyrics that those girls are singing. It seemed like a straight up sort of, you know, bluegrass music. But there's 
there's this weird uh, lyrics about uh, Jesus coming to coming uh, to visit them in the morning after he didn't kiss any girls last night. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, but I guess the point is, and and I think you know, you and I are both you and I comically to many of our friends have always been fans of contemporary country music. And I think that we both appreciate aspects of country music that maybe other people look down on, right? Like personally for me, I appreciate the existence of real musicians uh, prevalent on most even contemporary country records that you can listen to today, the hits of today are played by real musicians in real recording studios in a way that's kind of archaic and old fashioned at this point in time. And the, there's a lack of irony. You mean as opposed to somebody just making pro tools music yeah. in their yeah. bedroom? Okay. Yeah. There's, you can, you can hear chops. You can hear actual instrumentation, you know, even on the hits of the day, you know, if it's Laney Wilson or, uh, or, or anyone you care to, to name that's, you know, current Luke Combs. I mean, anyone who's, who's currently a, a, a big presence in, on the country music charts, uh, has real instrumentation in a way that's increasingly rare in the making of records these days. So, yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate that even just on songs that otherwise I wouldn't really listen or appreciate. I like, I like hearing for that. And I like the art of songwriting. And I think it's, it certainly you can hear the art of songwriting and many other types of music, but within country music, there's a certain, I, I like that the, the, the sort of limitation of the genre in a way creates experimentation and people try to do, try to do the same old thing in new and different ways and in ways that I enjoy listening to. So you're right that in one sense, the live performance of all the songs in the movie is really impressive. Uh, especially considering people that were not professional musicians who nonetheless pull it off and more than pull it off. But there's almost no moment musically in the whole film that's played straight. When I say straight, I mean played for the, the things we love about watching incredibly talented people play music live. I mean, I guess the only one you could say is, or is maybe Barbara Jean's performance at the very end, just before she's shot? I mean, everything else is is kind of, has a arch purpose or satiric purpose, right? Like, th there's no joy of music throughout any of the music. Does that make sense? Well, I think it may be up to the the listener and the viewer, uh, because as I said before, you know, there are some places where it was referred to in the book where Robert Altman was asking for bad country music. Yes. And but there are definitely some spots where some pretty good music comes through. I love the Charlie Pride knockoff where um, yeah, I uh, can't think of the uh, actor's name, but where he's singing the song about the rainbow and the bluebird. Yeah, which turns out to be a pretty good song. Now a big welcome, if you please, for the Goo Goo Man of the Hour, Tommy Brown. <laughs> I've been going down that long, lonesome road, babe, and I've been doing it for a while, yeah. I've been going down that long, lonesome road, babe, looking for a special smile. Now I work the bars 
New York to Frisco But I could never make it pay You know how money goes It slips right through your fingers One more dollar, one more day The bluebird, he has no money The bluebird, he has no kin The bluebird, he wears no time clock He answers to the wind Yeah, Tommy Brown, you mean? Yeah. Okay. What? Give me some other songs you like that I you th- like that. that you think I are like not that are not supposed to be dumb or silly. As I'm saying, you you can watch even the even the songs that are supposed to be sort of like straight, um, like I'm straight, like I'm easy, like Tom's songs. Yeah. Even that you can sort of turn any of these songs upside down and realize that there's a that there's a commentary going on either in regard to country myth making mm-hmm. or in regard to what the what the actor is doing with the character true uh and that so you know the the songs that are that uh seemingly are kind of not a joke mm-hmm. uh still have sort of a, a you know a bed of something kind of cynical about them well the, the, uh, the, even ronnie blakely's songs which are pretty good well i think it's fair to say that what you're talking about is that the song itself may not be cynical my Idaho home is not cynical as a song, but it's right. but the way it's used in the film is extremely darkly cynical. Um, Absolutely, it's the song about her her Barbara Jean's youth, yeah, uh, and her, loss of her origin story. Yeah, her origin story. Ten seconds before she's assassinated. Yeah, it was funny. I read in the book that you recommended, which was so good. Griel Marcus was one of the the reviewers at the time who really hated this film. And understandably, he's a music person. He's a music reviewer. He's kind of coming from the perspective that I was talking about, half of me coming from. And he said, it's so ridiculous to think that an audience of country music fans would, would react the way they do in the film to the shooting of the biggest star in country music. You know, when the whole industry is predicated upon this perhaps feigned close relationship between artist and audience, but nonetheless, that's a sacred tenet of country music, is that, you know, the country artist is one of you, it's one of the audience, even as he or she may be so rich and live such a such a <laughs> airy lifestyle as to have nothing in common with the average fan. But at least that's something that everyone agrees to to participate in. And so the idea that they would just go on singing uh, after Barbara Jean's lifeless, bloodied body is carried off the stage really was a bridge too far for Grill Marcus. But yeah, I don't know. That's part of the film that I have a hard time getting around is I love the scenes, mostly the Haven Hamilton songs, because they're so brilliantly, stupidly themselves. Mm-hmm. Keep a going, you know, <laughs> like this. I got to play a little. This is just... This is such a mindless, like bury your head in the sand. Well, if you strike a thorn of rose, keep a going. And if it hails or if it snows, keep a going. Ain't no use to sit and whine, cause the fish ain't on your line. Bait your hook and keep it trying, keep a going. When the weather kills your crop, keep the going. <laughs> Why it takes work to reach the top, keep the going. 
It's just so, I think that is a brilliant parody song. Like, yeah. There's even a line deeper into that song where, uh, I don't remember the lyrics exactly, but it, it mentions about when the, uh, the, the doctor gives you the news of doom. Yes. <laughs> that you should just keep it going. Just keep uh, it because going. The, because the doctor's just a regular guy like you. Right, yeah. Like, I love that. I can watch that scene. And on the one hand, I'm like, this is a brilliant piece of satiric songwriting. And I understand within the context of the entertainment industry exactly what it's trying to do and say. I also can appreciate that behind Haven Hamilton, this ridiculous character, perfectly portrayed and embodied by Henry Gibson, you have these real Nashville players playing on stage, right? Who really do have those kinds of chops that I was talking about that are such professionals, but are also these kind of badass backwoods guys in that way <laughs> that country music was and maybe still is like mm -hmm. some of these dudes look dangerous back there even with their right. silly suits and pompadoured hair um so i love that i love that that scene exists on so many levels right um but i don't know whether i wished it picked a lane or or i'm just not I'm just not wired right to just simply appreciate the cynicism. Um, I guess I like a little more heart at the center of things that I think are truly great. Uh, and it can still be dark, you know, mm -hmm. but have that heart. There's not a lot of heart in this film, except for the very notable exception of Lily Tomlin, who I, who I think had to fight for the heart that's in her scenes in a way that no one else in the cast really did. There, you know, there's the whole question of, you know, either standout characters or standout uh, performances in this. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of stories going on with 24 characters, some which are more drawn out and some which don't necessarily get, get as much screen time as others. You know, if I had to pick a story that I really want to make a separate movie out of, it's mm. Lily Tomlin and Ned Beatty's... Um, yeah difficult, you know, obviously uh, troubled marriage uh, with her infidelities and the two uh, sweet deaf kids in yeah. between them. Those uh, are such great scenes with her and the kids and her. I, I got I to gotta share with you, Jason, that I didn't have necessarily find myself having any kind of sort of genuine emotional reaction to most of this movie, but something about... Um, you know, Ned Beatty's sort of uh, mm. indifference to learning sign language yeah. with his deaf son. Uh, it really, it's heartbreaking. It, got, it, it, it hurt. Yeah, it hurt. And it's, it's brilliantly played. I guess that's what I'm talking about missing a little bit in other places. I mean, I'm so grateful that, that that scene is there. And I think, and Lily, we'll talk about her scene with Tom later, uh, where she also is so interesting and empathetic and and had to challenge Altman to get that scene, the the sort of aftermath sex scene with the Lothario Tom. She had to really fight to the wire to get that to be portrayed the way it is on camera. But this scene with the kids is is where Altman is doing something that no other filmmaker really does. And it's incredible for the realism of it. And the and but I think what stands out is the heart. Right. Yeah. And it's the bravery of Ned Beatty and the genius of Ned Beatty to play it the way he does, um, which his awkward uncomfortableness around his children's disability is 
so beautifully counterposed by the complete warmth and empathy and the presence of Lily Tom and the way she's with that son as he's telling her the story of jumping off the diving board and the kids call him goldfish. Her eyes are locked on him. She's with him. She's present in such a profound way that's so moving. And it's in a way odd that it's in the movie because there's no other moments like that in the film. So it's weird, like he's capable of that. And I read that the interesting, that that whole thing came about because the role was originally supposed to be played by Louise Fletcher, who had deaf parents. And in one of those only in Hollywood moments, I believe at the Academy Awards, Lily Tomlin, who was nominated for this role, lost to Louise Fletcher. Yeah, for uh, Cuckoo's Nest. For Cuckoo's Nest. And Louise Fletcher famously used sign language to talk with her parents when she won the Academy Award. Yeah, and uh, Lily Tomlin had to learn sign language in order to uh, play this uh, part that she was taking over uh, for Louise Fletcher in Nashville. And I think I couldn't say enough good things about Lily Tomlin in this film. And it made me so appreciative for the uniqueness of her career and the fact that she's still doing vital things now, all these years later, you know, uh, she's just a remarkable, phenomenal presence in, in American pop culture and in movies and now in streaming television and more power to her. And she's so brilliant in this movie. And without her, I would be probably a lot more dismissive of the film because there just wouldn't yeah. be any heart in it at all. Um, yeah, I can see what you're saying. You know, so I'm, I'm grateful for her. Who else do you think is amazing? And I'm gonna, I think, well, who else do you think is amazing standout performance for you? Well, I love Glenn Wells. Glenn Wells, the, yeah. Glenn Wells, she's the uh, aspiring singer who can't sing a note. <laughs> she's totally tone deaf. Yes. Without giving too much away, uh, she sort of gets tricked into going and performing before this room full of local businessmen mm-hmm. uh, who they're where the campaign is raising money for the for the presidential candidate she gets tricked into believing that she's going to uh, there to sing her two songs and have her get her big break as a star and it turns out that she's really there to strip <laughs> um so she sings her two songs horribly and then she and then she has to start taking her her clothes off mm-hmm. uh and I just feel like Glenn Wells. I don't really Gwen, know her Gwen, as an actress. Gwen, yeah, not Glenn. Oh, I'm saying Gwen. Oh, it sounds like you're saying Glenn Wells. Uh, well, I'm trying to say Gwen. Gwen. Gwen Wells. I don't know her uh, <laughs> outside of other Robert Altman movies, but uh, I love her performance in this. Um, I don't know how hard it is to be trained to sing off key. You know whether a lot of work goes into that or not. But I think that just as a both as a as a performer and as a sympathetic character, she's really interesting to me. She is really interesting. I talked about her uh, in our episode about California Split, which is the Altman film just before this, which she's also in. She has kind of a sad, tragic end. She died very young. She died at 42 uh, in 1993. She had a aggressive form of cancer that I think she chose to treat somewhat holistically. And there's a yeah. documentary made about her final days that's kind of heartrending. Mm-hmm. Um, but she had such an interesting thing as an actor and I think it probably must be hard to sing poorly like that. I don't know. I, I, I think human nature would be to kind of correct to some sort of performative badness, but she just straight out 
can't sing in a brilliant way. I don't know what it must be like to have to try to do that. It's as impressive in its own way as the other singing is that is actually good from non-professionals. Yeah. You know, like um, like everyone else. I mean, even even Haven Hamilton, even Henry Gibson, um, he's not a great singer, but he he completely embodies the type of singing that he has to in the film. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Gwen Wells is great. And I, let's see, who else do I also love? Where where are you on Ronnie Blakely as far as her? <laughs> I find her performance, this is sort of her, uh, her performance as the sort of... Uh, yeah. uh, Loretta Lynn, Loretta Lynn, yes, uh, singer. It's interesting because it's not. I'm never quite clear how to respond to her hysteronics and her fainting, and whether I'm supposed to, you know, whether I'm supposed to sort of take her seriously or not. Yeah, I think you are. I mean, I think you. Well, I think it's clearly presented that she and Haven Hamilton are the reigning king and queen of the scene. Now, this is, I think, a flaw of the film. The fact that you only really hear, hear her genuinely sing in front of a crowd at the very end of the film is kind of a flaw to me because I think it would be more beneficial to have her knock your socks off as a real performer earlier so that some of what you're saying is lessened. Well, right. she is in the the in the, uh, the scene where they're it's a smaller venue. It's, it's a chapel it's in front of a boat or something like that. Oh yeah, but that's her breakdown scene. That what I'm so, talking. She does sing two songs. She does, but but that scene is overtaken by her breakdown. What I'm saying oh, is, it okay. needs a scene of pure like wow. Yes, that's that's why she's who she is. Okay, and it's just presented that she is who she is as opposed to showing you. And I think that's one of the flaws of the film is, even though Haven Hamilton is a corn a cornball, and a phony you are shown enough of his performative self to understand why he is who he is. With her, they kind of just say, she's this massive star because here's this reception for her at the airport, right? But even that is overtaken by a breakdown scene where she faints. And so I agree with you. I'm agreeing with you. I think it's it's it it makes you uncertain why you're supposed to think she's as big of a star as she's supposed to be in the film. Right. Well, I think her character is is very likable. I just uh, because of the um, you know the uh, the the tenor of the rest of the movie, you're sort of like trying to find where's the you know where is the uh, where's the cynicism and the critique under this character. Yeah, and I think it's a little lazy too that you have the trope again of the Karen Black up and coming, vicious, careerist woman who wants to take down another woman. We don't see that same dynamic played out between any of the male singer stars. Yeah. So it's sort of like, oh, these women are at each other's throats, you know, which is just kind of a lazy thing as opposed to, I'm not saying it's not a real thing and that, you know, kind of who's on top and who's upcoming isn't an aspect of any industry, (laughs) any entertainment industry and certainly the music business. But it's just kind of like, why do we have to see the women pitted against each other, but we don't have to see the men pitted against each other? It's true. You know, one of the biggest surprises that that uh, I had in in reviewing this movie, reseeing this movie, I hadn't seen it in about fifteen years, was that I didn't appreciate before how much it's really 
mostly about the the women characters mm. um yeah you know as originally conceived by a uh, a woman screenwriter Joan, Joan Tewksbury uh, yeah but Lily Tomlin's character Gwen Wells Barbara Harris mm-hmm. Ronnie Blakely Karen Black mm-hmm. uh it's really a, this movie is mostly about the the female characters trying to mm-hmm. uh, figure out where you know either to either to uh get famous get noticed mm-hmm. or how to maintain fame <laughs> right uh and really you know and then it's it's a, a lot of the movie is the uh the women working again working within the confines of a uh sexist and misogynist right. uh, music world uh but if you had asked me before this you know this current watching this movie i probably would have been uh my my mind probably would have drifted to the the funny and interesting male performances but <laughs> right. really i've you know i've rediscovered how much this movie is about the women yeah and the and the women and the the female performances are uh uniformly i think more layered and more interesting than the male performances like can i ask you can i ask you where you stand with uh Geraldine Chaplin as the BBC reporter this is uh uh, Jordan Chaplin is in real life yes. is the daughter of Charlie Chaplin and what you think about her character. <laughs> well, I'm a little clouded cause I did just read a pretty brilliant review from the time from a British reviewer who was like, Oh, give me a break. This woman would never <laughs> have, have ever ascended to the ability to make documentaries all over the world for the BBC with this kind of pushy, no talent, uh, nature. But she is such an effective actor because my God, you hate her guts. I mean, she right. it, it, to have that visceral of a reaction, her pushiness is so perfectly put on screen by the actor yeah. that I think it's it's very well done. But it is one of the characters, and it's kind of like Barbara Jean too. Like it doesn't really have much of a point. I mean, it's kind of a one note joke that's belabored throughout the entire film. Now it's funny, yeah, in the sense that you know. It's funny to go back to Spicoli scenes in Fast Times at Ridgemont High every five or six minutes for some comic relief. And I think her dialogue is so sharp and witty. Her stupidity is so perfectly written and acted by Geraldine Chaplin that it's effective. But it doesn't really, it doesn't go anywhere. Now, neither does the movie. I mean, so it's hard to criticize that performance for not having an arc when very few of the storylines have any arc in this film. It's, I guess that's not what it's about. Yeah. So she's I, intended. She's intended to be sort of uh, uh, because she's playing a reporter. She's intended to be kind of the uh, uh, our avatar here, even though she's a dislikable character. Well, I don't think she's also- supposed to be our avatar because she's supposed to be so patently ridiculous, racist, classist you know, and, and venal, you know, yeah. she just wants to get laid by Tom, just like everybody else. I mean, so I don't think she's our avatar. She's not meant to be. I mean, if anyone is our avatar, it's probably like the Lily Tomlin character who's sort of not in this country music world fully, but is on the periphery. I don't know. I don't think we have an avatar. I think Altman's camera is the avatar. He is the avatar. He's himself. That's what I'm saying. It's kind of a selfish thing in a way to have this Altman-esque thing is ultimately his POV. You know, he's not, he's not a documentarian, even though so many of the scenes 
are populated with people that are brilliantly chosen to represent things that he wants to represent. But I mean, it's really his POV. So I don't think she's supposed to be the avatar. Uh, what did, what was your, you sound like you had a specific take on Geraldine Chaplin. Well, I just think it's interesting because there are sort of, there's some sort of layers here to the character. One being that the screenwriter, Joan Tewksbury, you know, did sort of a, a safari, you know, mission <laughs> to uh, right. go into all the bars of Nashville and come up with a lot of these stories. Right. Um, then... She kind of, although not necessarily in personality, wrote the character around herself and her own experiences. And then when Geraldine Kaplan, Chaplin was actually cast in the role, it was Altman who said, you're me in this movie. You're, mm. you know, as as as, as you just indicated, uh, you know, you're you. You're my point of view. You're the director's point. of well, view, and to- she's the one who has the most interaction with the different stories and the different characters. Well, I want to defend Altman for one second here. I think what he actually said was not, you are me. He said, watch what I do and do what I do in the scenes that you're in. I think what he meant by that was, as the director, he's got to barrel in and sort of interrupt everything. Not, you know, to get what he wants. He has to do that. And I think this, the dialogue you're talking about in the book is about him saying to her, follow me around, watch what I do and do that. Because that's what she does. She inserts herself into every scene that she's in, in ways that she's not supposed to. And the pushiness of that is, there are, again, these are some, some meta layers here to the Altman persona, because you can read a lot, enough about Altman to know he's so incredibly cruel to many of the people that he's working with, and also incredibly giving and charming. But even Joan Tewksbury is the is the characterization that he sort of enabled Geraldine Chaplin to embody a way to keep Joan Tewksbury's contributions at arm's length? Because that's not at all the way Joan Tewksbury would write the character. That's not what, if anything, her experiences are more like the Lily Tomlin experience where Tom is singing to Lily Tomlin and she's sitting next to the, uh, the Robert Doki character who's kind of drunk and hitting on her and sort of obstreperously interrupting the scene, that's more true to Joan Tewksbury than Geraldine Chaplin. And so I wonder if there's a part of this where, because I think Tewksbury's script, he took that and he kind of definitely moved and changed things around a lot. And I wonder if that was part of maybe his ego sort of saying like, you know, thanks very much. I got it from here. And sort of putting her in quotes, her characterization in such a silly, comical Lane was a way to distance her from it. I don't know. That's just speculation, yeah. but I I think it works. But again, it's it's a part of an overall thing, which is where the movie kind of ends up, which we'll get to. Um, I also love. I thought Karen Black was great. I mean, I know Karen. There's this cult of Karen Black. Um, is there? Oh yeah, there is. There's a oh, huge okay. cult of Karen Black. I mean, there's a band called the Voluptuous Horror of Karen Black. <laughs> okay. You know, she's a she's a she's an iconic figure amongst kind of underground artists, and she is rightfully kind of celebrated for her era specific or perhaps era uh, era jumping, you know, persona and the various qualities that she embodied, which were so right for so many films in the seventies. 
Uh, but she's so different. She's so unique that you can't help but have your eye on her, I think. Maybe you differ. No, I uh, I think she's she's interesting, and I think she's brave to sort of walk on the the set of, of uh, this movie with all of these uh, people who've been you know at this point within the production they had all been working together for mm -hmm. uh, weeks if not months, and um, her job is to sort of fly into town and uh, be the replacement <laughs> bitch. Yes, and uh, she handles it. She handles it pretty well. I, I like her songs too. Yeah, I think she probably, of all the non-professional musicians, uh, maybe with the exception of Keith Carradine, who's kind of almost a musician. You know, certainly released a number of albums. I mean, he is a musician, so I guess we have to give him that credit. But she, to your point, singing live the way that she is, you can't hide. And she doesn't have to hide. She delivers her numbers. Okay, Memphis it is. Well, I like to go to Memphis, but I don't know the way. And I'd like to tell you how I feel, but I don't know what to say. And I'd love to go to heaven, but I forgot how to pray. So just help me. again tomorrow but i i don't know what day it is and i sure like to love you if you'd show me the way and just help me keep from sliding down some more well i don't know what it's like out there and in here it's getting darker i got a lot of things to share but it sure is getting late I love the scene. It's the keep a going scene where Barbara Jean should be on stage, but isn't because of her most recent collapse. And Karen Black brilliantly plays this scene in the wings where she has this determined, aggressive, almost animalistic look on her face of, of sheer ambition as she waits to take the stage yeah. and basically take yeah. the crown from Barbara Jean. And there's a, uh -huh. there's a photographer to her right. And she perfectly kind of puts on this super fake smile when he's going to take her picture and then re returns to this, I'm going to yeah. rip the throat out of Barbara Jean. It's so brilliant. <laughs> Such a great use of her as an actor too. Uh -huh. uh, which, which is what I mean that there are individual scenes that are so brilliantly staged and executed and captured on film and edited that I almost appreciate the scenes more than I do the entire film in some, for some bizarre reason. I think that's fair. For example, Keenan Wynn, just legendary Hollywood actor going back to probably the 40s. Yeah. You know, handful of scenes as the well-meaning uncle trying to corral Shelley Duvall's L.A. Joan to just simply visit her, uh, her sick aunt in the hospital. And of yeah. course- L.A. Joan is too busy having her head up her ass and trying to get into bed with all of the male characters to spend any time with, this, with the ailing aunt. And Keenan Wynn's heartbroken performance is so great. And his scene where he's informed that his wife has died and this up to that point 
nonverbal or monosyllabic military character played by Scott Glenn is in that moment for the first time, totally effusive and smiling and and bubbling because my mother's the one who saved Barbara Jean. Of course, the, the genius of Barbara Jean's accident that she's coming back from is that it's a fire baton accident. <laughs> That's like almost the first thing in the movie. Yeah. Tragic fire baton accident. And, <laughs> you know, that juxtaposition, which could, which in lesser hands, I think would play a little broadly, a little too kind of hackneyed. But I think with these two actors and Keenan Wynn, man, God, that, that's a scene that got me too. Like you said, the Lily Tomlin scene with the, with the kids. Yeah. Yes. And I think the power of Keenan Wynn and his face um, just is so, so great. And, and, and again, this is kind of like, if that's what we love in part about movies and, and part of what I love about a movie like this is an old pro like Keenan Wynn, right? He's not a new, he's not like a young whippersnapper like Keith Carradine right? He's not like the new pretty boy. He's the guy that's probably been in Hollywood films since the forties or the thirties, right? And he's doing this work that's at such a high level. And if you read the book, while also basically being a completely incorrigible alcoholic off screen, yeah. which, which is just part of what I love about the movies and the industry and the flawed people that make it up, mm -hmm. you know, is that- Here's this guy in this kind of throwaway role that delivers the goods in such a profound way. Uh, I just have so much respect for that. I agree with you. Um, I And I, <laughs> this is where you can sort of, again, you can sort of keep sort of turning it over in your mind about what works or what doesn't work about this movie. And one of the issues is not that, it's not that, uh, the scene that you're talking about with Keenan Wynn is a bad scene, or that the the scenes with Lily Tomlin and her and her kids are bad scenes, is that they're good scenes that are off tone from other parts of the movie, and so you never, as again as the viewer, you're never quite comfortable with how you're supposed to be positioning yourself with the movie, whether you're supposed to be looking for the. Uh, as I said before, you're sort of looking for the uh, the the cynical underneath, or whether you're supposed to feel something uh, for certain characters and not feel something for other characters. It's the, it's not that I dislike the movie either. It's just that there I, I, I'm frustrated a little bit about how to position myself emotionally with it. Well, I guess Altman defenders and Altman himself would say he's trying to give you the tapestry of real life, which is all of these things all at once and in one yeah. day. Which I get, but I think to your point, it is, it is true that I think it's possible to do that and still maybe have more linear storytelling and or deeper characterization in your screenplay. Yeah. For example, I recently rewatched The Player, which is a brilliant movie. I mean, it's a great film. That's probably at one. That's probably other than MASH, probably the Altman film I, I love and respect the most. And it's so much more together a film in a traditional way, right? That's 92, so here's 75. So some of that is probably his evolution. And also by 92, he has already been in the weeds. I mean, after this, there really was like a whole period where it really was not happening for Robert Altman. And he's directing theater productions he doesn't really come back as a filmmaker of note and importance until the 90s. And he still makes a bunch of turkeys in there too, but 
so I think in if when you watch a film like The Player, which has much more linear storytelling, has a beginning, a middle, and an end, yet it has the most brilliant satire of the film industry maybe that's ever been put on screen. And it has more togetherness in a way that this film doesn't. But at the same time, America in 1975, like you could also say this is a very accurate depiction of the fractured nature of society. Like we didn't, we, were, we weren't in the 60s and we weren't really into the 70s or the 80s yet. We were in this strange place where Watergate was all consuming and shattering some very deeply held notions that are represented by Haven Hamilton and his ridiculous patriotic gobbledygook, right? 200 years, like we must be doing something right to last 200 years. Well, it's not about what we're doing right. It's like maybe we need to spend a little more attention about what we're doing wrong. Yeah. And, but I take your point. I mean, I feel the same way. And I think the ending of the film is, it's, to me, it's lazy. Like I don't, there's no grand statement made with the assassination scene to me. I don't know who that guy is supposed to be who pulls the trigger. I don't know what motivates him to shoot her. I guess we're supposed to believe he was gonna shoot the presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. But why does he shift to Barbara Jean? I mean, is the point that there is no point to American gun violence? Maybe, I guess. But as a piece of narrative storytelling, it just, it was unpopular for Joan Tewksbury. I know that from the book, right? She she didn't like that as an ending. Right. To me, it feels like he didn't know how to end it and just thought, wow, let's do this. And it is a very satirical moment. And it does tie together so many other strands about what the film is about, where you have Albuquerque finally getting on stage and doing a pretty damn good job, even though she's pointedly so off key in a bunch of places. But, you know, she pulls off the song Mm -hmm. and the crowd is, you know, applauding and singing along eventually and they just go on with their lives and so i get it but i don't i didn't love that as an ending i don't know what you thought i see your critique of it uh but i also see that where what altman was trying to do here at the time in 75 was to make a switch from a ton of political assassinations a few years before Mm -hmm. the kennedy's Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Mm -hmm. others, to set up. Imagine, if you will, if if the if the psychopath lone gunman actually killed a celebrity instead of killing a politician, Mm. with the intent that the uh, that the assassin isn't really assassinating. It's not about who they're killing for any kind of purpose other than for their own. Moment yeah. of fame. So you're, you're uh, saying he's so, sort of prescient then with this ending. He's for, he's presaging what would happen with John Lennon five years absolutely. later. Absolutely. That's the way I see it. And I think that it's a little bit hard to see this assassination of a celebrity through uh, 1975 eyes just because in our current day, mm. it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like it can't happen anymore or like it wouldn't happen. Uh, well, um, the, the, I think go ahead. Well, I think you're, I mean, I think you're right. I think there's, there's also a funny little interview moment where someone after John Lennon died sort of crassly asked Altman, like, don't you feel bad that you, uh, pre that you presaged this in Nashville? And 
he said, well, if I did, don't you feel bad that you didn't listen? <laughs> to me, it feels like he didn't know how to end this film and talked himself into having this ending because I don't know why. It just doesn't feel like the way I wanted it to end. And I don't, I don't know why, you know, I feel like why Barbara Jean, why this kid is the shooter. It just kind of truncates everything and everyone goes off camera and it just, it's just over. I guess some storylines are tied up, but some others aren't. And I guess, again, if I was being generous, you would say, well, that's life. You know, things don't get neatly resolved. Yeah. <clears throat> at two hours and 45 minutes. Right. Well, I, I, I like it better than you do. Yeah. To me, it, it, uh, as you said, it, it, it provides, uh, an opportunity for somebody to try to get famous by killing a celebrity. Mm. Uh, it puts a tragic, um, exclamation point on the character of Barbara Jean, uh, who's sort of the perennial yeah. victim. <laughs> throughout the movie. Right. And then it also provides a setup for the denouement, which is for uh, Barbara Jean's immediate replacement, who we've never heard sing throughout the whole, whole movie <laughs> to get out and do this sort of uh, knockout performance, the Barbara Harris character, which uh, is to come out and great. take over the crowd. And then for us to see the crowd's reaction again, which was apparently very controversial at the time, yeah. which was for the for the crowd to not react very much at all <laughs> and to have all the roving cameras right. in the crowd of extras to pick up the scenes of a bunch of kids mm -hmm. singing along with the singing along with the, with the, with the next song. There's a funny comment in the book where someone was, was talking about how they were filming the audience reacting to the shooting of Barbara Jean and, and, it's, they were like, people are crazy, man. Like people were holding up their babies still. Like, look at my baby, <laughs> you know, like, while her body's being carted off the stage. Right. So I get that. Like, yeah, I, I love that acidic, satirical eye towards human nature and uh, and certainly the entertainment industry. I'm all I'm all there for that. Um, what do you think of, of Albuquerque's performance? I think it's so interestingly staged and brilliantly staged where she's both good and not good in a very realistic way. How, how did you take her performance there? Do you mean her singing performance? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's hard to say whether she's supposed to be singing well or whether she's supposed to be singing under stress. Uh, again, it's, it's, a, it's another live performance. It's not mm -hmm. something that is being, you know, captured on a record. Barbara Harris does come out of uh, a lot of Broadway musical experience. And so you'd think that maybe she would be a better singer. Uh, but she's more sort of um, singing her guts out yeah. than necessarily trying to sing uh, brilliantly. So I could go either way on it. Does it work for you? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a great song uh, with, uh, again, with that sort of um, undercurrent of, uh, you know, the editorial of the whole film, which is she's singing this song about, she says... Uh, you might think that I ain't free, but it don't worry me. <laughs> it's so dark. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we don't care. Lead us into the killing pens. We will willingly <laughs> go. We are sheep. We are yeah. commerce supporting sheep. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's, I think it's so well done because she is good in, in moments and you can see 
that she could be a star. Like, even though she's been presented as this kind of joke all throughout the, the, the entire film. Um, but when she gets a moment, she handles the moment and it's raggedy in places. Yes. As it would be if you were not actually trained and had never actually really been on stage in that way. Um, and it's, you know, juxtaposed with the heartbreaking Suline who only, only consented to doing the striptease because she was promised that she would get to sing on stage with Barbara Jean. Of course, she doesn't get to do that now because Barbara Jean has just been shot. Right. And so she's sort of standing there. And this other kooky, crazy character gets an opportunity, which again, that's part of the show business myth that I love and I support that. Uh, I also loved reading about her antics as an actor all around the production and driving everyone crazy and driving Altman crazy. <laughs> like she sounded kind of hilariously unhinged in a great way. Right. And she was kind of... Uh... Uh, not on time a lot. No. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it, what's interesting in watching a bunch of Altman films over the last couple of years is I, I really respect the actors that do well in his films because he, it, it sounds like you can't be the type of actor who can only do what you're told to do and do well in an Altman film, unless he's put you there purposely <laughs> so that your uncomfortability will read as part of your character, like Keith Carradine. Because um, Keith Carradine never felt comfortable or understood Tom or what he was supposed to be doing. Uh, he didn't, he palpably did not like the character. And Altman pointedly didn't give him any direction. And so... In the Altman biography, he's got so many funny bites where he says, I realize now, like, he's a genius because what you see on screen is a guy who doesn't like what he's doing. Because I didn't like what I was doing. I didn't like this character. I was so uncomfortable in my own skin. And that's perfect for Tom, right? Yeah. It, 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 it's more perfect than if he had spent six weeks talking and rehearsing Keith Carradine to get him somewhere. Instead, right. he just cast a guy who's universally such a nice person and, and beloved in the industry. And he pointedly made him play this asshole, this egotistical, venal asshole, and never allowed him to get comfortable doing so. And that uncomfortableness is perfectly represented on screen. Yeah, and it goes it goes, it goes back to this, this sort of problem that I was talking about. I don't know if it's a problem. Uh, what I was talking about uh, before, about whether there's a grand... Uh, plan for this movie which there isn't mm -hmm. yet things a lot of a lot of little things turn out perfect anyway that's true and that's part of the you know <laughs> it's part of the amazing thing that we have to wrestle with here is in all these Altman movies like I just I also I, I watched um I rewatched um The Long Goodbye the very controversial Philip Marlowe Elliot Gould starring detective movie, deconstruction of a detective movie slash detective movie that Altman made with Elliot Gould a few years before this. And there are some scenes in that film too. And some actors, this is the thing, there's, there's a handful of actors in that, in The Long Goodbye, who just quite aren't up to it. And unlike, like Keith Carradine is up to it. It's not that he's not a skilled actor, it's that he just was never comfortable with his character. And so that comes through. Whereas in The Long Goodbye, 
Elliot Gould has some moments where he's not really pulling off the acting. And Nina Von Palant, it's not quite up to the acting. Sterling Hayden is, of course, a force of nature and brilliant. Uh, but Jim Bouton, you know, as the villain, mm. is not an actor. So there's some moments where his casting kind of thwarts what he's trying to do. In this film, I think he, he, he cast it particularly brilliantly, uh, even though, as you said, not really sure what the whole thing was supposed to mean or even meant to Altman. That's why it's kind of funny when you read some of these, some of the fawning reviews, you're like, my God, was that really going on in the movie? I didn't necessarily get all that. Right. It just becomes a thing that you can project a lot of stuff onto. And I think because he's making it in 1975, because Watergate was going on, uh, he does manage to capture American popular culture or society and its mores and its ridiculousness maybe better than a lot of other films that really set out to try and do that do. And the cast here is such a big part of that. You know, to go back to Lily Tomlin for a second, you know, I really loved the section of the book where she talked about having such a different conception of the um, seduction scene where Tom is singing I'm Easy to her, but also kind of singing it to the other three women he slept with in the crowd. But also he, to them, he's sort of singing it in the same mean-spirited way he does so many other casually cruel things with women in the film. Mm -hmm. From the way he throws the way he throws her jacket at her at the end of the, the scene where they're performing on stage. Yeah. It's so nasty. And mm -hmm. that song scene is so brilliant between the two of them particularly. She never looks at him once after the start of the song mm -hmm. until the very end of the song, whereas he's looking at her the whole time. And when they finish the song, he goes, you forgot your jacket and he throws it at her. And it kind of like hits her in the face. It's just so, mm -hmm. so nasty. Mm -hmm. Lily Tomlin talks about how she worked so hard for her physical presence in that table scene where she's sitting in the back in the dawning realization that he's singing to her, mm -hmm. which again, this is the genius of Altman. This scene is taking place on so many levels. Like on the one hand, it's, she is, uh, she's experiencing something very few people get to experience, which is a famous person is focusing all of his creative power on her in front right. of everyone else. Right. And she's not, you know, she's not a young, no, uh, available woman. She's, I don't know how old. Lily she's a middle-aged mom. She's supposed to be she's a middle-aged middle mom with two kids. She's at, you know, and Ned Beatty, her disinterested husband. So, I mean, of course she's going to, uh, have a, have herself a slice of that. And on the one hand, that's what's going on for her. On the other hand, it's such a cynical, and meaningless thing for Tom as we've known him to date in the film because we've seen him casually use and discard a number of the other women in the film. But unlike those other scenes, he actually seems to have fallen for, for her, right? Like he's different with her post-coitally than he is with anybody else. Mm-hmm. And it's her leaving him. Like in the other ones, he forces an ending by making a phone call to another woman while the, while the other woman is still there. Yeah. Uh, with with, with uh, Geraldine Chaplin, he, he kind of angrily smacks her shoulder. He's like, get up. 
right? <laughs> it's just so, and you know, she's so ridiculous that you're sort of rooting for that in a way, even though it's still a pretty callous and cruel way to treat someone. But he's not like that um, with Lily Tomlin, right? He's, he wants her to stay. He doesn't want her to yeah. go. <laughs> and so I read in the book that when, she, when they filmed the table scene at the club, for her, it was all about what she was going to do with her eyes and that Altman famously invited everyone in the cast to dailies and they were a ton of drinking and pot smoking. And uh, I think he may have, I don't know if he thought better later in his career, like maybe don't invite all the actors to the dailies because that just invites a whole bunch of psychosis that you probably don't need as a director mm. <laughs> of the sort that would entail when Lily Tomlin like fled in tears because it was so it was shot so darkly that you couldn't even see her eyes. And she felt like her whole performance was ripped off the screen. You know, yeah. everything that she did didn't register. But of course, I think it does register. Um, and then I think her scene with Tom was written completely differently, right? Um, yeah. she, she was like, no, no, no. She would be wearing a slip. She's not, she's not going to be comfortable being naked with this young guy because Lily Tomlin, who, you know, again, was probably younger than she's playing in the film at the time, but sort of in, intrinsically knew that this character would be, would be still wearing her slip. <laughs> it's a, just a brilliant little choice and that she wanted to play it more movingly than it was originally written and really had to fight Altman for it. Was, was just a great little section of that book. And I think that's such a, such a well-done scene. Like it's, she turns the tables on Tom. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned before that there's the scene in the, uh, in the club where he throws the jacket mm. at the, uh, you know, his. At Mary. Uh, at Mary, his, his, not just his, his, uh, his performing partner, but the, mm -hmm. you know, the girl that he's fooling around with. He throws the jacket at her. We don't even know. He wouldn't, we don't even have an established reason why he would be angry with her. <laughs> yeah, uh, just his hostility to women, I think. Right. But then I, if I, if I read it correctly, the way that the scene with Lily Tomlin in the motel room was supposed to go was that he was going to throw her underwear at her. Mm. And right. she put, and it was Lily Tomlin who, to, who, shut that down and instead she when she's walking back from the sink i watched it last night she sort of looks under the sheet and grabs her yes. own underwear she's not going to be the kind of um victim that he's making out of other uh, out of other characters do you think that altman was smart enough or maybe it's lily tomlin who was smart enough because I, I i got from this section of the book she really changed the the tone and the tenor of the way the two of them were portrayed in that scene the bed scene yeah i, I got the sense that the connection and the heart there all came from her. She's like, no, 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 no. This, this is how she would feel about this. Mm -hmm. And I don't know who to give credit for other than the actors for the fact that Tom and his behavior towards women and his self-hatred, which is what's really on display in all of his dismissive behavior. The reason I think he throws the jacket at Mary is he's so angry at her for being dumb enough to be in love with him because he's mm. aware of what a pathetic human being he is. Like he's right. got a self-loathingness. So he's yeah. taking it out on the women that are, he doesn't have any respect for these women who, who think he's all that in a bag of chips because he thinks he's a piece of shit, which he is. Right. And it's really interesting the way that the, 
as you mentioned, the scene in the motel ends, which is that she's going home <laughs> yeah. by her, you know, yeah. by choice. She's, you know, she's leaving this mm-hmm. affair and his first reaction is to try and get her to stay. His second reaction is to get on the phone yes. and try to get some girlfriend from New York to fly down that night. Yes. Uh, because he cannot be alone. On her and, dime, by the way, which I think yes. is such a funny little twist at the end of that scene. Uh-huh. And I think whoever played the other side of that phone call is so brilliant as an actor because, again, she's like, she can't even believe he called her. It's so it's mm. so apparent when you listen to her side of the call. She's like, oh, my God. And they're kind of joking. And then when, when um, Lily Tomlin closes the door and she hears the closing door... That's just room service. Uh, there's 50 cents on the desk there. Just pick it up. <laughs> Big tipper. <laughs> yeah, old times are hard, you know. Right, all that money. You can afford to bring me down there, I see. <laughs> yeah. Well, well you... never mind. I'll see you in a week. I love you, Tom. Well, you got all that money. You could afford to fly me down. And he immediately shifts. When you watch the scene, listeners, watch how Keith Carradine is sort of amiably joking, even though he's doing exactly what Rick just said. He just doesn't want to be alone and he wants this woman to fly down to Nashville then to to keep him company. Mm -hmm. But the minute she suggests that he pay for her to fly down, he goes ice cold and he cuts the call off. Right. And she's saying, she's trying to say, I love you, Tom. And he just hangs the phone up. Right. So it's so, um, again, there's like, some of these characters get so much more than others in terms of the inner life and what is represented. And I think for Lily Tomlin, what's so great about this scene is sort of like, she gets the better part of the scene. She gets the better part of the interaction. Like if you're looking at it as a, as a groupie rock star interaction. Yeah. Like the, the stereotype is who, who gets more out of the, who gets more out of the liaison? Is it the rock star who, you know, is going to be leaving town in a matter of hours, never to come back again or to come back next year, Mm -hmm. who gets his rocks off with a willing groupie? Or is it the groupie who now has a story that, you know, he or she can dine out on forever? We we don't really know, but typically- Not only that, she also has this, she has this moment of intimacy with him when he's being genuine, where she starts teaching him Mm -hmm. how to say, I love you in sign language. Yes, the man, the the husband that she's cheating on, declines to learn sign language right. with his own kids. Yes. So by the time she's at the exit of this motel room, she's not angry that no. he's calling up somebody else and that he that he's calling in her replacement. She doesn't. She's I don't even not, think she does. She doesn't feel that she's been taken advantage of. No, and I don't she think she knows. even. I don't think she even knows that he's doing that on the phone, because. You're right. She's completely, you're right. She's completely content. She, she, it worked for her mm-hmm. and she's going back to her life. He's the one who is left in his own misery and loneliness. And that's part yeah. of the genius of how she plays that scene as an actor. Um, I thought she was phenomenal in this. Yeah. And if it was anybody other than Louise Fletcher winning for One Floor <laughs> of the Cuckoo's Nest, I'd probably be really, really upset that she didn't win for this. But you can't really argue with that. Um, so I thought she was phenomenal. And I think she's really worth 
watching and paying attention to because she somehow figured out, again, this is, I think she's the type of actor that to me seems to be rewarded by the Altman thing. Like you got to get in there and fight for what you want with Bob and be willing to do that. And if you're not, I think you could be portrayed poorly, unfortunately, or dismissively. Like he says a bunch of times when some of the more nervous actors are like, well, what should I be doing? You know, like, what do you mean the camera's just going to rove around and like, maybe you'll, maybe I'll be on camera. Maybe I won't. And Altman would say something, well, if you're doing something interesting, I'll point my camera at you. If you're not, I'll keep moving. And like, that's such a weird thing to say to an actor. You can imagine like, they just want to know what's, where's my close up? Uh, when are we doing the other part of my scene? You know, he's just not working that way. Right. And it's interesting that Lily Tomlin was an established TV and stage, mm-hmm. you know, comedian at this point and not a movie star. This was her first, uh, I think it was her first feature film. Well, what's amazing too, is that both she and, uh, Henry Gibson, if they're, no, I mean, if, if she's known for anything, she's known for, for being the switchboard operator on Laugh-In. Right. Like this broad comic caricature. And he too, it's not like he, he was not a, he was not known as a dramatic actor. Uh, but they're both brilliant in this film. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, I have to say, uh, um, as, as sort of comprehensive as this Nashville Chronicles book is, I would have liked to, uh, either read or find a little bit more about why Lily Tomlin was cast in this role. I mean, we know that she was the replacement and as was, um, Henry Gibson, who was, uh, um, replacing Robert Duvall. Right. Uh, but right. I'm not, what I didn't, what I did not get was why them. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't get that either. I'm not sure if only, if only this podcast had done its homework and could bring that in that vital <laughs> information to its listeners, but you'll have to go dig that up on your own somewhere, I guess. I know, but they're both brilliant. Um, Henry Gibson. I mean, it's a, it's, I'm not gonna say it's, t- it's like as an actor, I think people, you, you like that role because, it's more interesting to be the bad guy than it is to be the good guy sometimes. And I think, Mm -hmm. I think the Haven Hamilton role is such a great, is such a great vehicle for preening egotistical um, showmanship. And he has so many brilliant little lines. Like for example, when Elliot Gould shows up at his party in the woods, um, (laughs) he has this throwaway line where while he's throwing Geraldine Chaplin out of the party because she's she's pushily, aggressively trying to to suck up to and interview Elliot Gould at the party, he has this little throwaway line where he says something like, you know, how could you, I mean, how could you act so poorly when there are, when there's such a star, two stars present? And it's such, so pointed, like, wait, two stars, is he noting of course, in his own mind, he's the star. So when he says two stars, is he, mm. he he's noting Elliot Gould's presence as a star and he's realizing I kind of have to mention him too. Or is he, when he says there's a star present, is he referencing Elliot Gould and then his ego can't help but throw himself in? Either way, <laughs> it's so brilliant, right? Like it's just right. this tiny little thing that he does. And another example of that for me is in the very first scene when he's recording the 200 Years song, and he stops the recording one time and asks the name of the guitar player, whose name is Frog. And he says, well, he plays like a frog. Let's take it again. And this time I want to hear a little more Haven. 
And so then we see the second performance and then the piano player screws up again and Haven Hamilton shuts it down again. And he says, Bob, what was the name of that piano player again? In a way that you know he knows the name of the piano player, which he just asked about 30 seconds prior. But he's insulting him by pretending he doesn't know the name of the piano player. Or talking to him directly. Or even talking to him directly. And that's so brilliant to me. I just love that kind of stuff in the, in the Haven scenes. Yeah, it's great. Did you note how old Henry Gibson was in 1975? No, how old was he? He was 38. <laughs> wow, he really convincingly plays mid-50s. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. 38, wow. He's so good. I mean, what did you think of Michael Murphy? Who's, he's such an odd actor presence to me. Um, I don't necessarily make too much out of his character. He seems like he, um, is, you know, he's playing the guy who's supposed to be slick. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's the, you know, he's the guy, I don't know where he's from, but he's not from Nashville. And he's the guy who's come into town to try and convince all the country music stars to come and play this, um, this, uh, benefit concert for his, uh, for his populist mm-hmm. uh, political candidate. Uh, so yes, he's supposed to be slick. He kind of, you know, uh, gossips about people, you know, underhandedly yes. in order to, um, uh, you, you know, make the person he's talking to feel like they're superior to mm-hmm. the person he's talking about. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's not a comic book villain. No. You know what I mean? I mean, this easily could, you know, this easily, especially in the context of trying to improv a character, he could have come across as uh, much more uh, oily than he than uh, than what he delivers. Like, for example, do you think that the Ned Beatty character is more oily than the Michael Murphy character? I would say so. And maybe the little bit of that is, you know, class and the way that Mm, he's the way that they dress the Ned Beatty (laughs) character. And the fact that he also has kind of a, uh, you know, that scene with Gwen Wells mm, where he yeah. uh, he tries to sort of take advantage yes. of her vulnerability. Uh, and he's a married guy. And he's a married guy, yeah. Um, and he has Lily Tomlin at home and these two wonderful children who he's just not yeah. appreciative of whatsoever. I guess yeah. what I was saying with Michael Murphy is I'm, I'm fascinated in a way by an actor like that who, who uh, Altman would work with forever, really, the entirety of his career. And he was the star of that HBO series that I didn't really watch, um, which was like the 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 president the presidential campaign series where he was like the perennial candidate. Do you remember that show? Um, uh, no, it was like a, an HBO. Yeah, you, HBO. Yeah, you'll remember it when I tell you the name of it. Um, Tanner eighty eight. Yeah, Tanner. That was on forever. Like I never okay. watched that, but that was that was his like political. It was kind of like a veep of its a veep ahead of its time. Uh huh. And what I'm interested by with it, with an actor like that is he's not a star, right? He's not, um, and he's, he's not just like a journeyman working actor. Like he, he occupies a particular niche that's interesting to me, which is that he's supremely capable. He's perfectly cast and he's great at embodying exactly what you just laid out. But what is it about an actor that makes him not 
you know, Elliot Gould at the time. Like, what's the difference? Charisma and, and indefinable quality? I don't know what it is. Like, what makes someone a Michael Murphy and what makes Elliot Gould Elliot Gould at the time? <laughs> well, it's a good question. I mean, I hate... I hate to be superficial, but Michael Murphy is a lot better looking than Elliot Gould. Hmm. So, um, so you think that's to his detriment? I think that in in some of the roles that he plays, especially the the ones that I'm most familiar with in these in these Robert Altman movies, he's interesting because he's a villain who doesn't look like mm, a villain. He's the devil uh, in sheep's clothing. He's the devil in sheep's okay, clothing. That's a good point. That's a good same point. Same thing in uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, right? Uh, where he he seemed like a well-spoken, mm-hmm. uh, you know, well-educated, handsome guy who wouldn't have a reason to be evil. Right. Um, uh, and Elliot Gould doesn't necessarily play evil parts, but he plays, you know, disheveled, uh, broken right. people. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, speaking of a couple of things that don't work for me at all, Jeff Goldblum, Tricycle Man. Why even have this character? Like, what? he doesn't do anything. And if you're going to have him, have him. But I mean, it's such a silly contrivance. And he's dressed so ridiculously. I, I really don't understand. Like, I don't get what he adds to this film in any way. As much as I, I love Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, I mean, he's sort of, uh, you know, he's sort of a, an observer uh, who keeps sort of crashing the party. Mm. Uh but I don't know what if he if he was suddenly excised from the entire thing, would it really make any difference? Other no. than he can't, you know, drive people around on his motorcycle. <laughs> Maybe he's just a device. He's a plot Maybe. device, like a, a transportation device. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. He's just he's basically uh, he's uh, you know a motorcycle instead of a taxi. Well, but, it's just funny knowing Jeff Goldblum. I guess as we do now, the idea that he's some sort of biker is a pretty hilarious contrivance. That's maybe that's what strikes me false about it. Like. He's not a biker. He's like a jazz right, musician. Or that he's soft spoken. <laughs> yeah, he's like. Although he is, he is a great. I didn't really pick this up until the third time I watched the film for this. When we're introduced to Keenan Wynn's character in the diner, with and we also meet Suleen Gay, and it's also where we where we see Tricycle Man sitting. The first time you see Keenan Wynn, he's he's entered the diner and he's about to sit next to Jeff Goldblum's character until he notices Jeff Goldblum's character. And then he moves four stools down to sit next to sort of a more normal person. And then they have this really cool (laughs) naturalistic dialogue, which I love, Mm -hmm. uh, which feels almost improvised, you know, where the guy next to him strikes up a conversation and Keenan wins just so, I don't know. He's just this amazing combination of present and absent-minded it's like when he's driving uh when they're in the car wreck scene and he's with shelly duvall and she says god are all they got in nashville country music stations aren't there any rock and roll stations and his answer is well you know they figure once they get in and they see what's going on with her they're gonna give her kind of a overhaul he's talking about his wife (laughs) It's, that's a brilliant little dialogue scene too, because a it's showing you the disconnection between these generations and these characters, and how she doesn't really give a shit about his wife, her aunt, and he does. I, I just find that such a great little, like there are these nuggets like that that are filmmaking at the highest level to me, or are completely accidental, <laughs> and, and no one intended them, 
but he got them. You know what I mean? That's the thing is like, do we ascribe that to the genius of Robert Altman or is the genius just, we're going to put this whole thing in motion and we're going to get some really cool stuff that we otherwise would never get. And it's going to make us all seem like geniuses. I still don't know the answer. Yeah. I don't know either. Cause again, like I see, you could see every one of these characters in, in, in layers and on the, on the, on the, on the surface level, the you know Keenan Wynn's character is supposed to be a uh, a very sort of likable and sympathetic guy. Uh, but on the other hand, every time that he that he begins to speak, he's telling some sad story about his <laughs> wife or yeah. his kid who was killed in the war. Yeah. And you start to realize, oh, I get what this guy's supposed to be about. He's a drag. Well, I don't know. I don't know that he's a drag. I think he's. He's a drag for the other characters. He's a drag for for he's a he's a, a drag for the young people in this movie who are motivated by something else. I guess so. Yeah, I mean he's he's a drag in that he represents the shit that happens in everyday life. You lose your yeah. son in a war, your wife gets sick, you got to deal with all this stuff. You have to pay the rent, you have to turn your house into a rooming house. Like yeah, it's a drag, but it's real life and I think that's the heartbreaking brilliance of casting Keenan Wynn yeah. um, is that he embodies all of that so well. The other thing I wanted to ask you before I forgot, what is up with Lily Tomlin being, Lily Tomlin's character being a white gospel singer who's performing with the Fisk Jubilee singers? Like, is that supposed to be a joke on her character? Like, she can't sing, yet she's driven to be with this black musical purity? Like I didn't get, I don't, I still don't understand what that's supposed to indicate to us. How do you take that scene? Like you're introduced to her, it's intercut where Haven Hamilton is singing 200 years and having his little breakdown and yelling and screaming. And then it's intercut with her performing with the Fisk Jubilee singers who are in phenomenal. Like I guess above any other musical performance, they are the most musically pure in the entire film. And mm -hmm. there's a bit of that kind of white, you know, liberal good intentions, perhaps um, reducing them a little bit to a caricature as opposed to truly appreciating them. I think it goes. I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier that uh, all of the women in this movie are trying to become, are trying to get to the next level. Uh, in the music industry. Mm. She's part of the music industry too in her way, but she's part of a group. She's she's one among a group as opposed to somebody who is, you know, she's not using the choir as a stepping stone to become a famous gospel singer. So do you think we're supposed to think that this is an example of which there are many in the music business where the black act itself is already brilliant and genius uh -huh. but it's the white co-optive performer who is going to become the front person. Is that kind of what that's supposed to indicate? I don't see it that way, but like you, you could read it. Well, because she's certainly presented as having no singing talent whatsoever. Like it's pointedly poor singing, which is a choice in that scene now, but she's also pointedly shown fully caught up in the exuberance and the believability of the dancing and the the joyful spirit of the noise they're making. So that's why it's kind of one of those off-putting scenes for me, because I'm not sure what I'm supposed to think about this. It's not as if she's 
clapping or dancing off beat, which would be sort of a, you know, hackneyed way to do the scene. When she's dancing with them, like she's caught up in the spirit. She feels it for real. It's real. Yeah. But mm -hmm. her singing is terrible. And right. that's also played very real. So I'm not mm -hmm. sure what we're supposed to think there. Like, why would this white lady think she's going to be a gospel singer <laughs> with the Fisk Jubilee singers? I don't get that. I don't, I think that she's, that it's, that she's a, a housewife mm. who's, um, who's rich enough fitting, to go record with the Ju Fisk Jubilee singers. Well, she's fitting in with, she's fitting in with, uh, as part of the, uh, the, the community of, uh, musicians in this movie. And, but she can't be, she can't be a, uh, an Albuquerque. Hmm. So you think she's still a striver? She's still someone who, like, she she wants to be a gospel star? No. She wants to be in the choir. Oh, okay. Because the way the scene is filmed, like, she's fronting the choir. Well, like, she's Lily Tomlin. <laughs> she's Lily Tomlin, and the rest of them, the rest of the people aren't anybody. Well, are you saying- Except the choir. So is what you're saying is that you're saying because she's an actor that we know, and they are- the Fisk Jubilee singers that she's just going to stand out anyway for being white against the sea of their black faces. Because I thought the way it's filmed in the recording studio, she's having a solo, like she's front and center and she's singing and they're backing her up. That's how the scene is presented. So that's why it's felt to me. And then when Bud takes in the Geraldine Chaplin character, he says, Oh, they're recording. Um, and he says something like, Oh, she's a, uh, what is she, she says, she says she, she's our she's our lawyer's wife no no yeah but i think geraldine chapman says is she a does she say something like is she a colonialist or something or she <laughs> she references lily tomlin in some inappropriate way uh -huh. and he says yeah he she's our lawyer's wife she's a gospel singer yeah. so it, it's just a strange like it would be one thing if she was amazing as a singer and you sort of felt like okay but she's very pointedly not amazing as a singer so i wasn't really sure why she's there and then I guess when we have the, another really nice little montage scene is the, when all the different varieties of worship scene. Yeah. Um, so you have Haven Hamilton in the church, you have um, Barbara Jean performing in the chapel at the hospital, giving a very, giving almost Barbara Jean's most real per, present performance, ironically, right? Yeah. Um, and then you have the black church and Lily Tomlin is in the choir, to your point. So I, I don't know what to make of that. But, I don't think it's totally worked out. Yeah, I guess not. So uh, when I talk about, when I say that I think that it's supposed to be consistent with her character and that she's fitting in with the uh, the people in the choir, uh, hmm. that that's just my read on Like, they, they certainly accept her. There's no indication in the scene that they're kind of like, who's this crazy white lady? But it's weird <laughs> that they accept her because she definitely can't sing. So I'm not, that's, that's, is it like, she and Delbert are wealthy enough where they have the funds to indulge her, her genuine appreciation for this singing group and her attempt to uh, either co-opt that or become a part of it. And she can afford to bring them all into the recording studio and make a recording. Uh, it's just, it's, un, it's unfinished to me. So that's just a strange thing in a person who is going to be treated so so with such delicacy and layer in the rest of the film. It's kind of this one place that is just it's not really defined in a way that feels hard to find a way into for me yeah well like i said i think it's 
it's a device to to connect her character to the music industry because if she wasn't true if she didn't have that then she would just be uh the lawyer's wife that's true also i want to shout out bill jenkins from wnge channel 2 for a great performance as himself in the barbara jean plane scene at the beginning of the film i really enjoyed his newscasterly tones was that was was the guy what was he an actual like local yeah, he's, yeah, he's the actual reporter yeah he's actual local nashville reporter bill jenkins okay he does a great job you know i've just thought of something too i think when um when uh keith carradine calls mm-hmm. uh lily tomlin on the phone the first time and she doesn't know she doesn't remember who he is yeah that he says they met in the studio they, he does say that yes he does say yeah. that so I guess, yeah, I guess you're right. It's just meant to, it's kind of like if it was set in Hollywood, everybody's tangentially involved in the film business. I guess everybody's tangentially involved in the music business. Yeah. So, um, all right, Rick. Well, I think um, we've gone an hour 45 on Nashville. There's a lot more we could talk about. Uh, I'll just end by saying that the film was not a huge box office success, but it was both a critic's darling and eviscerated by an equal number of opposite critics. I think it was nominated for five Academy Awards, but it was the year of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Actress. So Altman continued a string of losing for otherwise notable films, like he lost for MASH, which was against Patton, uh, and he also lost for The Player. So those eluded him, but uh, Nashville, intriguing period piece, definitely worth rewatching and enjoying on any number of levels. I'd be really curious to hear what people in the audience think when they watch the film again after listening to this, because uh, I think I could use some guidance on how to think about this film because I'm still unresolved, which I guess is a good well, thing. You know, um, Country singer Brenda Lee, Little Miss Dynamite. Mm. She was apparent. She apparently uh, was quoted as saying that Nashville was a dialectical collage of unreality. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because I highlighted that in my um, in the book, but then I forgot to bring my Kindle, so I couldn't I couldn't actually access all the paragraphs that I had highlighted. But that was, I was like, if she really said that, that's pretty amazing, and I need to take another look at Brenda Lee. <laughs> I'm not sure I could use dialectical in a sentence as well as she did. Sure. All right, Richard. Well, thank you so much for going on this journey with me. As ever, it was incredibly revelatory, and I look forward to whatever we're going to do next. Right. Uh, I I have to say that while it's highly problematic that Nashville is really interesting, uh, it obviously stirred up a lot of controversy in the time that it was made, mm-hmm. and you could come back you could come uh, come away from it uh having a lot of different and conflicting opinions uh overall it's really good i did enjoy it uh i did want to put in a plug for uh a supplemental supplemental film that we both watched oh shit this, i forgot to talk about payday. that day oh yeah we have to spend we have to spend okay so i don't want to go no no no, no let's just give a brief we have to talk about payday briefly unless we should do it as a whole episode but yeah um I don't know how we, how did we come across Paydays? Oh, it's mentioned in the book as sort of a counterpoint to Nashville in that it's- That was a, made, bef- uh, I think, a couple of years before Nashville. Right. And it's a very, it's a much smaller undertaking. It stars Rip Torn as Maury Dan. Uh, 
who is a middlingly successful country singer, sort of successful enough to take advantage of all the temptations of the road, uh, but not yet at a level where he's flying on planes. He's still traveling by car and has a long-suffering manager. And it is a pitch, pitch dark take on certainly the music business and show business in a way that definitely spoke to my shattered heart. I mean, mm. I loved it. I bought the, I actually uh, have an original poster that I bought. Uh, that's how much I loved it. And I had to buy the DVD because I couldn't find it streaming. You sent me the link to, the link to where it's streaming on YouTube, yeah. but it's missing a very key scene I realized on the YouTube for whatever reason, I think because it's literally dubbed from an old VHS. Um, but man, what a film. <laughs> I mean, it's so weird, right? Like Rip Torn, man, I've never seen him like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we, I, is it episode worthy? It might be. Um, <laughs> you think about it. Um, I could definitely talk about the movie. What was interesting to me was that for something that was obviously on a lot smaller scale than Nashville, mm -hmm. And not well known as far as I know. Yeah, I never B, heard of it. Essentially a B movie. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you were talking about sort of conflicted reaction to Nashville. I was emotionally much more um, responsive to Payday than I was overall to Nashville. I would agree. I mean, I think I was more emotionally responsive to specific scenes in Nashville. But yeah. Payday as an experience is like getting slapped in the face by a Waylon Jennings who's been up for seven days on a meth and booze run. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it pulls no punches. <laughs> it's just, it's pitch black. And it is an unvarnished look at the underbelly of the music business then and now in right. a way that few other films ever have gotten close to. Yeah. And it's uh, it's a really fascinating, weird film. So I'm gonna watch it again. I got the DVD. I'm going to take a look at that so I can see the film in its entirety. It's got some great performances and similar to Nashville in a way, right? I won't give away the end because people probably haven't seen this film. Right. But it also has kind of a surprise ending, wouldn't you say, um, that maybe you did or didn't see coming? I don't know. Right. Well, in case we do decide to talk about it again, <laughs> I'm going to hold off on okay. commenting too much about uh, because I think that, um, you know, on a, uh, on a kind of scene by scene basis, there's just, there's so much packed into, uh, a pretty short, small budget film. Yeah. I think it's worth doing. Maybe we, we should do it. I mean, I had a lot of success doing sort of the follow-up Spicoli episode to the Fast Times of Ridgemont High. So, uh, Payday is a shorter film. You're right. It's only 89 minutes and it packs a wallop. So it'd yeah. be fun to do that. Let's think about it. Okay. And I would say, Rick it's more truthful musically in its way. Don't you think? Um, there's, there's not as much music in it, but it's attempting to be uh, a, a more authentic depiction of what it's like to be a country music. Right. Uh, uh, mu you know, to be a musician on the road. And it's got, it's got scenes that are hilariously funny and dark. And it, it uh -huh. also has some very moving scenes. So I think it's worth doing. I think we should, I think we should, we'll see how the reaction is to Nashville. Yeah. And if the fans such as they are, are clamoring for more of us, <laughs> mm -hmm. we can revisit it. 
I'm clamoring for more. I'm clamoring for more. I'm always clamoring for more of you, Rick. Thank you. Fantastic. All right. Goodbye.